0: To Touching Greatness. I'm Alan J. Santos, and today I'm talking with Damon Coleman. I am honored to count Damon as a very good friend. I met him while I was a member of the Toledo Symphony Orchestra, and I don't recall the very first time we met, but what I do remember are the many points of connections we discovered as we got to know one another. We talked about the things we were passionate about, the things that shaped us, and the things we were interested in. And in those early conversations, I remember talking about Run DMC, A Tribe Called Quest, Wu-Tang Clan, The Golden Age of Hip Hop. I remember talking about great literature and comic books. We could discuss cinema and art. We talked about fountain pens, Japanese paper, inks, and writing, and we could talked about spirituality and meditation. As we got to know one another more deeply, we found our way into more and more complex conversations that could jump from topic to topic and domain to domain yet still somehow maintain a thread that unified the entire conversation. Some of my favorite times with Damon are the moments we engage in battle over a chessboard. We play chess regularly before big concerts and during intermissions, And in my estimation, we have way more unfinished games than games in which a winner could be declared. And for me, it wasn't so much about winning or losing. It was more about the opportunity and the excitement for the intellectual nourishment of the discourse that happened during these games. He's one of the musicians I've looked up to as a model of excellence and mastery. The way he approaches his craft and his pursuit of greatness has always inspired me and taught me. He's a true artist who puts tremendous effort, thought and care into everything he does. He's a member of the Toledo Symphony still and performs chamber music as the cellist of the Bozonian tri- Piano Trio. He's an active teacher. He served on as a faculty member of the Miami School of the Arts, the Ann Arbor School of the Arts, the New England Music Camp, the prison, Music Festival and the University of Toledo. He's been the recipient of the King Chavez Parks Visiting Professorship from the University of Michigan. He currently also maintains his own private teaching studio. He is a regular participant in the Sphinx Music Festival. He's an advisory board member for Voices of the People which is a national chamber festival that unites music and philosophy in a celebration of the humanities. His other interests include literature, meditation, and chess. In this conversation, Damon and I talk about your craft being a tool for understanding yourself, transcending category, the ego and greatness, his life philosophy and his internal flames. We talk about unlearning, time, and so much more. I appreciate Damon so much. I learned so much from him and I'm so excited to share this conversation with you as I know you will come away with something to think deeply about and learn from. Please enjoy this rich conversation. Damon man, welcome to the uh, conversation. Uh, I'm just super excited to, to dive in with you. Wherever we go will be awesome, I know, just uh, in relationship to all of the times we've been in, in incredible conversations. So thanks for being here, man.
1: Well, it's my pleasure. And I'm honored that you asked me, and I'm looking forward to it.
0: I'm going to start with an epigraph of sorts. And this is from um, Er-Cheng uh, from the 11th century. One has to investigate the principle in one thing or one event exhaustively. Things and the self are governed by the same principle. If you understand one, you understand the other for the truth within and the truth without are identical. Now, I thought I would start with this for some reason, it just says I thought about you and thought about this conversation, it just really spoke to me. I know you're, a think deeply on a lot of different subjects and also part of what I love about your musicianship is the authenticity, I guess I would say, or the sincerity, the, the truth of who you are that comes through your music.
2: Thank you.
0: Yeah, so I just wanted to share that as maybe a a lens to look through for for our conversation. Before I ask you anything else, um, how does that, that passage land for you? What do you get out of it? The first thing that comes to mind is that
1: I had a teacher at one point, I don't remember which one it was, who asked me to stop playing in the middle of a lesson, and then proceeded to tell me that um, what I was doing was not in the abstract or in a vacuum. And you know, teenage me just looked and said, "I have no idea what you're talking about." And you know, then this teacher told me, "Really, what this cello is at base level is a tool for understanding yourself. And so the more you learn about cello, the more you understand about music, the more insight you'll have into yourself, the more insight you'll have into the world at large. And I didn't understand that at the time because I was too young to grasp this concept. I think I just let it filter to the back of my mind and I forgot about it for a while. But then when I started teaching, it became very, very clear what this teacher was trying to tell me so many years before. For example, if I had a student who um, was struggling, let's say with confidence in real life, this would manifest itself you know, in a shift in a piece. Or if I had a student who in real life was overly concerned about getting every tiny detail right and losing sight of the whole picture, you could hear this in their playing. Like they would focus so much on tiny things so that the large scale of the work would be lost. And so I started thinking about what I could learn from things that I struggled with on cello, what I could learn with things that I felt were going well with cello. And, you know, it may seem, cliche now to say it but the concept of all things being connected I think truly is insightful because it seems to me that you know even if you do just study one field like cello or you know chess or mechanics whatever it might be this is going to give you insight into yourself and if you allow it insight into a larger world if you can be open to it
0: That reminds me, there's kind of two directions I want to go here. So uh, just, it reminds me of um, what you're talking about. It's like the art of just being a learner, being a deep learner, understanding yourself more, understanding your place in the world and how you relate to the world. I remember when I was in taking a lot of auditions, there was such a difference between being able to produce something in my practice room and sort of seeing the skills Seeing the skills I had, I could produce things in the practice room. I was like, okay, that's where it is. I've got it. But I would take them out into the real world. And I would run across resistance, mistakes, different things. And for a long time, I had a a belief that I needed to my technical foundation or there was a technical problem involved in the mistake I made. But as I started to inquire further, I started to understand that these things weren't such a a fault of any technique, but it was more of a, uh, what would I call it? It was more of a, there there was a deeper theme that was running underneath this and how I related to the world. So let me give an example. One of the things I was having a problem with, or not problem, but like one of the things that was showing up, my my wife, girlfriend, I'm not even sure what she was at the time. Um, all of the things actually, but our relationship, she was traveling a lot for work. So that was in a way that was upsetting uh, to my um Rhythm, my normal rhythm of daily life, ungrounding to that. And I started to realize that it was, it was when she was coming and going, it was taking me a long time to get grounded again. So there was, there was like a lengthy process of, of transitioning in that. And I started to see how that larger theme showed up in the transitions of switching from one style to another in orchestra auditions or from one piece to another. And rather than training technique, I started to understand it like, oh, I actually have to train those transitions and understand how to get grounded a little bit more quickly. So I started to look at even just moving from one room to a next, or completing my practice and moving to a classroom, or finishing orchestra and moving to whatever, or rehearsal and moving to the next part of my day. I started to break those down to, to understand how finally I se- could segment those moments so that I could feel grounded. And that made all the difference. It was never a technical, like, have to have the technical foundation, but it became more of a learning process of how am I relating to the world? And it was these larger themes that I saw were, were the things that were holding me back from playing the way I wanted to. Interesting. Yeah.
1: The, um, the thing that helped me with the issue you're describing was I think for the first part of my musical life, things were very definitely in categories. Like, you know, I grew up in Detroit. There was the Motown category. There was the R&B category. There was the jazz category. There was the hip hop, hip hop category. There was the classical category. And so when I thought about these things, I just saw them as separate entities unto themselves. And so then, you know, when I started diving into classical music and I started learning, oh, Mozart, this is classical. Like, okay, this is the classical. And Tchaikovsky, he's romantic. Okay, this is the romantic. And so I started constructing these compartments in order to understand things better. But putting things in compartments that way, didn't allow me to see what things had in common at a base level. And so it took me a long time to realize that while these compartments helped me when I was learning as a child, you know, as I started to mature and perform more and do auditions, having these strict rigid categories was actually hurting me. And the thing to do was to look at how things were connecting beneath the surface of all of these categories, like what do these composers have in common? What is you know fundamental to all of this music? For example, if I'm playing a Beethoven quartet, the bass line in a Beethoven quartet, or you know, if I'm playing something by Mahler, I'm still trying to feel what the groove is, what is the underlying pulse beneath it? And so If I look at some music in one way and some music in another way, and I forget that there's a pulse, if there's this stability, this grounding force beneath the music, then everything above it gets a little shaky. I think the sense of the music gets lost. So, I mean, that's just one example of things that are, you know, connected and that transcend category. But the more I sought out those things, the more music made sense to me and the easier it was to you know, communicate with it and feel like I was more a part
2: of it.
0: I love that. It speaks to like deep understanding of the deep foundational elements and the fundamentals uh, that also give you a reference point to relate all the, expression of a composer the personal preferences of a composer the personal ideas of a composer onto those onto that foundation so you're always coming from the same place no matter what no matter what style as a performer you're playing it's always from the same place
1: so then i guess the question i would have is did you ask if this was only from your perspective like when you sense that you know, you were feeling ungrounded by the coming and going. Did you ever found out if she was feeling the same thing? And then if so, if it was something that, you know, you could navigate and learn from each other in terms of making it feel less that way?
0: Yeah, most certainly. I mean, you know, there was um, any relationship that uh, requires time apart, especially um, that was just a fundamental aspect of our relationship she was a opera performer so that her work just required her to be away and yeah we had many conversations about that and it's not you know one of the things you're talking about is um, categorizing something naming something it's like we have this need to name something so that we have a way to talk about it but I also think that in the naming of it, it immediately makes it static instead of the dynamic thing, the, the, the process that is actually happening in all of life. So it was a conversation that we continue to have because in one way or another, it, um, the, the process of being in relationship and having this oscillation of being close in proximity and then further in location, um, was one that we continually had to navigate and express to one another how we were in that that oscillation. Because there were times where it's like, it's an interesting thing. There's the external distance, but an internal feeling of intimacy and closeness. But there's also like moments where we're right next to each other that we would feel very distant. So these two polarities, uh, just always trying to communicate these two different polarities and where we were on them um, was a, a big part of uh, what contributed to us having a, a relationship that worked with that distance. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So then when you discovered these things, was it easier for you to perform And move from one genre to another.
0: Yeah, Um, I mean, in the big sort of like you know, I'm 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 particularly talking about um, you know, especially during an orchestra audition or that kind of scenario where you have a few moments—thirty seconds, a minute, maybe—of each style of music. It would be particularly magnified in those situations. And it was, it was uh, learning how to be grounded, not getting too ahead of myself, being in the moment and slicing time so that I understood, okay, what is the very next thing I need to do? Oh, just take a breath. I can do that. No problem. It took care of that. What's the next thing? Okay, I need to get an overview of where I'm headed with this. What's my intention with this piece of music? I just did that rather than it's like, holy crap, where am I? And it's kind of like a million things going on in my head yeah. and not having any sort of, uh, it's all just floating around and confusing and not having any understanding of where the first thing is. <laughs> yeah, so that was, that was all really helpful. Um, and of course, you know, this is not just helpful in, uh, in those situations but has been a, a tremendous force for being present and bring, being in the moment with myself, with people outside of that. Um, yeah, but I, I always find that's just an interesting, it's just an interesting um, thing to think about, especially when you're, for any high performer, there's so much, um, in my Observation, at least there's so much attention on the how to and the technical aspects of things, and um, not as much addressed in the, the, the way of being or who we are, who are we, and how do we relate to life, and how do the themes, uh, how do the friction points of the larger viewer of our life, how do those show up in the small moments where, where they're getting in the way of our creative efforts? our intuition, our insight.
1: Interesting. I would agree with that. I think the one thing that um, I studied with Paul Katz when I was in undergrad, and the one thing I remember most that he told me, I think I was maybe a sophomore at the time, I was uh, performing a piece by Sasaw for him. And he stopped me and said, what are you thinking about? And I said, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Because my thoughts were everywhere. And he said, well, I'm going to tell you, he said, your job as a musician is to make the next note as beautiful as possible. And he would say, you know, when you start letting your mind drift and you lose focus and, you know, you don't feel a connection with what you're doing, this is when the performance becomes not successful. But if you can stay in the moment and just focus, this is the next note, I'm going to make it as beautiful as possible. That gets you into the mic right into the right mindset that you need. And um, for me, that applied to so much more than just a song. Just um, You know, it's very easy to wake up at the beginning of the day and just see time as this, blank slate and what am I going to do here and here and here and here and here but if you just uh, you know apply that process make the next note as beautiful as possible you know what is the next thing you're going to do you're going to make your bed you're going to go play some scales you know go make some tea whatever it is just staying involved in that one thing not worrying about what's going to happen on the next page of music or in the next hour after you make the tea or, you know, just that focus helps me a whole lot.
0: Yeah. There's not a, only the focus of, um, doing what you're doing now, but there's also the intention of, of creating it as a, a beautiful moment, like creating the next note beautifully. Right. That gives it a quality to, to focus on as well. So I'm, I'm curious, um, I'm curious if you have a personal philosophy that that drives you or a North Star of sorts. Is it beauty or is it something else? Well, that's a simple <gasps> question. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> I would say if there is a philosophy um, having thought of life in different ways over the years, um, it's never been one philosophy. The way I thought about life in my teens is definitely definitely not how I thought about it in my thirties, which is not the way I thought about it now. So I think the point I'm at now is that I'm realizing more and more how finite everything is. You know, I remember a time when I used to think, oh, you know, I'll learn this piece someday or mm-hmm. I'll go visit this piece someday or I'll uh, I'll call this person or visit them someday. But the uh, pandemic definitely put things into a stark perspective of, um, you know, this concept you had of this constantly unfurling time and someday, was just something you could maybe get to, that uh, that was instantly dispelled. On the one hand, there was the part of me that had not experienced, you know, we're not having rehearsals, we're not going anywhere, you're just going to stay in one place. Like just that mindset of you know having that space to think changed a lot for me, but on the other hand, in that space of thinking, I thought to myself, you know how in a in a way I had been careless. For example, I would say just without thinking about it, I'll see you later, and I realized how much I have been taking for granted. You know, of course I'm going to see this person tomorrow, or you know, of course I'm going to be playing this piece again. So. Um, this may be a very roundabout way of getting to your answer, but I think that at this point, what I'm thinking of is that um, my points for being here or my reason for being here is to become um, as enlightened as I can, to become you know as luminous as I can. And maybe if along the way, I can help others on their own personal journey, then that's an added bonus. But yeah, just becoming the, the highest version of myself possible and helping, each other, helping others while I'm on that journey, that seems to me a, a good way to view things and make decisions that are
0: necessary. Yeah, that's powerful and beautiful. Thanks. For sharing that, Ben. Let's draw it back. Actually, you, you mentioned um, just growing up in Detroit, I've known this. Um, I'm curious about how that shaped you and how that's, uh, you know, I think our environment informs us. I'm wondering how the city of Detroit has shaped you. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's the first thing. I'm also cur- just curious about a little bit more. Closer to you, like what it's what was was your family dynamic growing up with, and how these are like I'm giving you so many questions here. Okay, (laughs) so I'm just gonna I'm gonna draw them all out and then we can we can go one by one. And I'm also just curious about what brought you to the cello and how how you decided or how you fell into choosing that as the the voice for your expression. Okay. So whichever one of those you want to start with.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, so your first question was about Detroit. Yeah. I think um, that's an interesting question on the one hand, there are things I can list. But on the other hand, I feel like the question is a little bit like asking, so Mr. Fish, what was it like growing up in water? Like, I
0: think think
1: if, like, I'm not sure I have enough frame of
0: content. Well, I find it interesting. You know, it's like, um, here's one of the things I think about kind of where, we sort of started this conversation off with the interplay between our internal world and how that relates to our external world talked a little bit about you know the technical versus the psychological so i'm curious about this question because someplace like i'm here uh so close to new york city was was there yesterday spent some time there last week it's easy to get around there like anyone you plop in the middle and just tell them where to go and as long as they know the grid and you have these numbers going this way, and the avenues going this other way. You, you sort of know how to get around there. But when I look at Detroit, whenever I spend time in Detroit, it's like you have it's a weird. Tri- triangles, and, yeah. <laughs> these hubs, and there's no, there's kind of a grid and a pattern, but it makes a lot of it's just off kilter in some ways, and it's impossible to get around unless you have been there. And I think that must have something to do with how you solve problems and and how a person uh, thinks because their daily existence is trying to figure out the best pathway to from point A to point B. So that's one of the reasons I'm curious about it. Interesting.
1: I never thought about it in that way before. I guess... um...
2: When I was a child, the main issue was uh, what parts of the city should
1: I be in and what parts of the city should I not be in?
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. So much- uh, Base level, it, Maslow's hierarchy. Yeah, yeah, was, uh, <laughs> how, do
1: I, how do I get to this street or that street? Was, right. Where should I be or where should I not be? Right. But I mean, I imagine that's, that's the case for any city, but when I, when you were speaking, I was thinking about, um, is it possible to you know, extrapolate any experience and determine how that part of Detroit informed the way you think about things? And some things that come to mind, first of all, um, there's so much music in Detroit, yeah, I mean, the music in the churches, I remember vividly. The uh, the guys standing on the street corners, you know, harmonizing, I remember that. I remember the guys, you know, beatboxing and rhyming on their way to the basketball, you know, parks. And I remember uh, r and concerts. I remember, you know, rock concerts. I remember going to see Prince and, uh, just being amazed that somebody could sing like that and then go play guitar like that and then go play drums like that and then go play keyboard like that. That was very humbling. It's like, I, I'm having problems with my C major scale. <laughs> <laughs> just playing all the instruments on stage. <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: that was a moment. But anyway, so I think that, uh Definitely being in a place that was so musical made music feel like uh, something I should be doing, something that was natural, Not, Mm -hmm. not like, oh, I'm going to study music. Like if it's all around you, it just feels like, you know, this is a part of your life already. And, you know, this is something you're supposed to be doing because everybody I knew was involved with music on some level or another whether it was in the church or you know playing drums in a band or singing or it was just something that was you know a constant from what I remember. I think um, also the fact that there's so many different cultures in Detroit. Um, have you heard of Dearborn? Uh-huh. It's just outside of Detroit? I think Dearborn has The largest uh, Arabic population outside of the Middle East, if I remember correctly.
2: Wow, yeah. So, um, you know,
1: being in those neighborhoods and, you know, experiencing that culture, like that music, uh, the restaurants, like how people interacted with each other, um, it wasn't so much um, me thinking of different groups of people as and us and them. It was more, um, you know, we're all here in the same place. And maybe we think about life differently and maybe we interact a little bit differently, but, you know, we're all here. Mm -hmm. I I definitely can contrast that with people I knew who grew up in a place that was, you know, just one culture, one type of people like the first time that they met somebody else outside of that, it was a shock to their system. But I remember there always being a wide variety of you know, different cultures and you know different types of people around. So yeah. I think that that must have made its way into the way I think about life, certainly.
0: Yeah, I mean, even just in the conversation we're talking about, it kind of reminds me of what, how you were talking about Music earlier. Just coming down to what is fundamental about about these different compu- composers' music, and also seeing it's like what is fundamental about humanity. What's fundamental about a person that I can relate to as a reference point? I think it's really beautiful.
2: Yeah,
1: there was. Um... I don't know. This is. My own personal, I mean, not to get too much into, uh, this is going way off track, but I remember um, going to church with my family one Sunday, and the minister was speaking about um, heaven and the life beyond. And I remember going home and thinking about that. And um, that weekend, the next weekend, I went to uh, Belle Isle, it's a, you know, a small place you know, out outside of Detroit. It's, I don't know how to describe it, but it's a <laughs> you can edit that out. So I went to a place, I went to this, this place called Belle Isle and I was sitting there, you know, watching the waves and listening to the seagulls. And I thought, you know, I'm perfectly happy in this moment. I mean, this could be what heaven is right here, if this is what that minister was talking about. On the way back home, however, I remember passing by this alley that had, a, you know, addicts in it, and you know, like just seeing the suffering there, the sounds they were making, and you know, seeing what this drug had done to their systems. I thought, you know, this this is hell right here. We don't we don't need to we don't need to experience another realm of consciousness. Like from what I can tell. It's right here. And so like that day really stuck with me. Like I felt like I was in heaven at this one place. And you know, 10 minutes away from that place. I thought, well, this, this is hell right here. This thinking that um maybe these things aren't as quite so far removed as being way, way up in the skies and like way, way down beneath. As they've been described to me, it's uh again, I'm not certain that this is a, a function of Detroit necessarily, right I don't, that, that is, uh, is a, yeah that is a day that sticks with me huh. many years later, just that thought that I had in those two yeah
0: periods. how old do you think you were or how old were you when um, that memory
1: probably early teens
2: maybe wow, yeah so.
0: Yeah, that's a very, strikes me as a very, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of of myself in that kind of situation and I think I would realize or be aware of some sort of fear there. I don't know if I would have had that kind of an insight. Um, Yeah, I'm just... It's incredible to have that view of things so early, I think.
2: Well, I think also um if you're in
1: the if you're in a space where you know that kind of thinking is possible, yeah, by which I mean, um, I don't ever remember you were asking about my parents. I don't ever remember my parents saying, um, don't think this way, or, you know, you can't read this book or, uh, it was always an openness from what I remember. Mm. Like if we can't find the answer for you, then, uh, you have your library card hmm. or,
2: you know, if, yeah.
1: if, if you want to know about something, then, you know, you should go explore it and so um, that was that was definitely very helpful like i um, i know being in friends houses you know somebody would put on I i don't know beastie boys or acdc and you could hear one of the parents downstairs like turn that off turn that off what are you doing but you know, no matter what it was that I was playing, it could be, uh, you know, Run DMC or Tears for Fears or Coltrane or some world music. I mean, I couldn't be blasting Mysterio at two in the morning, but I never, <laughs> I never got to turn that off. It was always, oh, what are you listening to?
2: Mm.
1: You know, just, uh, just being given that that freedom. I think is uh, maybe what allowed me to have the thought of of the Bell Isle versus the alley.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm thinking that there's a connection
2: there.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like you had a very uh, supportive, encouraging environment of learning and uh, to grow up in. Could follow your curiosity.
1: Yeah, I think yeah. it definitely helps that. Um, there's a lineage of teachers in my family.
0: Mm, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, my mother is a music teacher, was a music Mm. teacher, she's retired Mm -hmm. now. Um, My grandmother taught, uh, people on her side of the family taught, people on my father's side of the family taught. So I think um, having authority figures around you who are interested in knowledge and learning and teaching? This uh, this seeps down to the children because you know if you see the adults reading and you know trying to learn things, I think uh, you know as a kid you want to mimic that and you know I certainly did. So
0: yeah, that's yeah. really cool. So were you? I'm trying to figure out how um, you came to play cello, why, why you chose that instrument, how that came about. Was that something your parents were just like, well, it's like your mom's like a teacher. It's like, well, it's time to get this kid in music lessons. Let's give him a cello. <laughs> How'd that come about? <clears throat> well, it came
1: about um, when I was maybe three or four. There was a piano in the hole because you know, as I said, my mother was a music teacher. She also played viola and piano, and so um, you know, I'd go over and I'd like you know put my hands on the piano like any kid will do, like seeing what different notes would come out where different depending on where my hands were. And so she started giving me piano lessons, and I did well at the beginning. I think not necessarily because I was some great child Wunderkind pianist, but (laughs) just because I had a natural inclination towards music. But the thing I definitely remember is um, both my mother and other people who taught me piano, they kept telling me to sit back from the instrument. Like, my natural inclination was to sit as close as possible, like Glenn Gould style.
0: Yeah, Uh, just be over top of it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's
1: it's like, no, no, sit back. What are you doing? Like, who taught you this? And it wasn't anything (laughs) that anybody taught me. Like, I kept doing this. And so um, I remember that I was doing well, but it wasn't something that, as far as a young person could feel, that I felt was really a part of me. But going to hear my mother play in ensembles, I remember hearing a cello and wanting to play that. And you know, I would ask her, can I get one of those? Can I get one of those? And she said, well, stay with piano for a little bit longer and then we'll get you a cello. And so I remember when I did finally get a cello, I was maybe six or seven, and you know, she told me how to sit and how to hold it. And I played a note, and that just felt like it was what I should be doing. Mm. And all these years later, I realized that um, when I was sitting up, hunched close to the piano, it's because I wanted to feel the vibrations of the instrument,
2: Mm.
1: which, um, I mean, you know this playing bass, like a a string instrument Mm. resting on you and you play, you can feel it, you know, resonating inside of you. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Like that, that was the feeling I was trying to get with the piano, but, you know, you're not supposed to play piano <laughs> so, so you know when I had a cello and I could you know play the C and just feel this vibration it's like ah this is what I should be doing so, yeah that's yeah
0: that's so interesting so, so uh, there's a... about
1: that because you know I I go into the public schools in Toledo and I teach through a grant through the symphony and um, I've been doing this for quite some time, not just here, but in other cities. And it seems to me that a lot of kids who are um, in orchestra or starting an instrument and then they quit really quickly, it's not because music's not for them. I think they're playing the wrong instrument. Hmm. Like I can see that like you definitely need a certain personality, let's say, to play trumpet. You know, this feeling of soaring above the orchestra, this this sense of, you know, an open sound. And so if you have somebody who's not suited for that and you make them do that, I think they're not just battling the instrument, they're dealing with, you know, things in their personality that don't necessarily match up with what the instrument does.
0: Yeah, it's, it's almost like they're going against the grain of who they really are and the, their natural expression in the world.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that piano was definitely not the instrument I should have been playing. And yeah. if I had kept playing piano, I I might have been okay at it, but I wouldn't become a musician on it.
0: Definitely. Yeah. Have you looked at, so there's this desire to feel the vibration of the instrument, but have you looked at um, the other reasons why you've chosen it? Like, have you... Explored that at all. It's like when I look at bass, um, it's kind of like, I think the instrument has a way of choosing us, I guess, for lack of a better word. It's like, I didn't, bass is just a thing that spoke to me. For some reason it, it called out to me and said, didn't say anything, but it just captured my attention. And I had taken lessons when I was younger as well, piano lessons, and just was not interested in music. I, I did my half an hour a day or whatever. And that was it. You know, it was, it was hard to get me to practice any of those things. So that lasted maybe a year, maybe two. And then when I saw someone playing bass, it was like, oh, I want to learn how to do that. My parents ended up getting me a bass. I started taking lessons. All my time was going towards it. And when I look back at it, it's like, there is this, there is this sort of curiosity and this kind of, huh, what is that instrument? I wanna play that, this, this desire to explore it more deeply. But when I also think about it, I, I wouldn't say I consciously chose it because of this, but I, I knew I was, I was a very shy kid, not only introverted, but also super shy. Knew I didn't want to be a guitar player. It's just like too much. Knew I didn't want to sing. That's even more up front of the band than a, than a guitar player. Right. Drums didn't make sense. I was like, I don't want to carry all that stuff around. <laughs> Same with a keyboard player. And bass player was like, I love, you know, it sort of speaks to my own personality. It's kind of in the back of the orchestra, but it also lays this foundation for the orchestra and that's like what I love doing. I don't like being the person up front, but I like being in the supportive uh, role. And also if there's like this thing about basically, it's like, you don't really, it's kind of like if a bass player is really good, you don't really know it's there, but you know when there's a bad bass player playing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's just a funny sort of hidden in a way, right? The, the tr- like a, a great musician understands when, when a, a great bass player is playing. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm just curious if you've thought about sort of that, um, are there other reasons why you think it's called to you and why it fits your personality?
1: I have thought about that. On one level, I think that, um the timbre of a cello speaks to me and always has. So, you know, um, I don't know how to put this, so I'm not insulting other instruments, but for example, <laughs> just us say, like- not, not, See, I did not say that. Say that. For example, um, I remember when, I was uh, a child and I heard a, a performance with the Detroit Symphony. It might've been their principal oboist, I don't remember, I was too little, but playing Mozart with the orchestra. And I thought, you know, this is this is interesting, that's okay. But, you know, I was, you know, looking around at the ceiling, looking around at the wall, but, you know, when my parents took me and, you know, a soloist was playing Dvorak cello concerto, like, you know, my, my attention was like just there. There was no chance of it going anywhere else. So I would say that definitely the, the basic sound of a cello clicks with something inside of me and speaks to me on some deeper level. I think also, um, the range, I don't know. Um, have you listened to the Kodai Solo Sonata? Do you know this piece?
0: Oh, um, yes. So you, you performed it in a recital, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if you listen to
1: how high this is. That's piece a
2: monster is, low, of a piece, yeah.
1: And how low this, like the range of this, like this is not a range I hear in other you know, orchestral instruments as far as solo writing goes it, um, I appreciate you know the poignancy of the upper range and the depth of the lower range I think also um, just the contrast that's available for example if you're playing a bass line in a string quartet you could just be going yum, bum, 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 just laying down a groove and then you know, you have the uh, second movement of Schubert, Death and the Maiden, and you just have this soaring melody that is like the centerpiece of the movement that he decided to give to the cello. So I think the fact that it can go back and forth between these elements also,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I enjoy that as well. Yeah. Maybe uh, it's the element of contrast.
0: Yeah. But, Range, and there's like, the way I'm relating to our conversation is, is the, uh, one of the first thing you were mentioning is like having to get away from compartmentalizing how you think about something that led you open up to experiencing something in, in a deeper way, but also how this shows up in just like, it's like what the cello is too. And what you're describing right now, there's different roles it can play and it does each of them very beautifully and there's also like an established history of it from the very earliest of repertoire up until today it's not just like let's give the cello the melody just because it's a novel thing to do it's actually because it it's a function of the instrument yeah yeah um
2: wow that's cool i would say also what i've been thinking
1: about um is scordatura. Mm-hmm. Scordatura for, uh, for the non musicians out there. I think the literal Italian translation is mistuning. So in an everyday setting, the strings on the cello from lowest to highest are A, D, G, and C. But from time to time, you'll get a composer who changes that. For example, the fifth box suite. Bach has you tune your A string down to a G. And so just tuning this down makes the upper range of the cello, it gives us this darkness. And, you know, this seeps out into the entire suite. If you listen to the suite, you'll see why this makes sense. It has this, you know, this, uh, this sense of melancholy that pervades the whole suite.
0: Gra- gravitas to it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Or, um, the piece where we we're just talking about the Kodai you tune down your lower two strings to mm. an F sharp and a B. And so this just makes, first of all, all of these chords possible that aren't when you have strings tuned in fifths. But also I think just releasing that much pressure off of the bridge, it opens up the resonance of the cello in a way that you know, it's not normally as far as singing. And so I'm working on a piece now called Seven and the composer asks for just the C string to be tuned down. But I mean, even that much, this would have, I think this fits into the concept of, you know, compartments, like instead of just thinking of the cello as these four strings, you know, you can tune the string down, you can alter it. And now the whole dimension of what you thought the instrument was has changed. And, you know, this world of possibilities opens up and I enjoy that.
0: Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. It speaks to your range and your openness and all the things we've been talking about. Let's talk about your performances a little bit. Um, One of the things I've always, one of the things you do that's always inspired me is take on some massive projects and recitals year after year, after year, after year, after year, after year. Um, In my mind, it's like, I've always held you as an example of what an excellent musician is because of how, how you, yeah. How you approach the craft, how you take things on. Like so many of the recitals that I've heard you play have been it just like you're always reaching for something beyond your grasp. And I've always appreciated that a lot of people and there's nothing wrong with it. It's like a lot of people just end up recycling um, recital repertoire. Maybe they'll add a new piece, maybe not, but like, there's always something sort of like monumental in my eyes that you're taking on. And I'm wondering, like a lot of effort goes into that, not only just like the technical, trying to grasp something technically, it's just the foundation, but there's also just the emotional aspect of trying to share something through through that music, the, the sort of inner process of like, am I up to this task? Yeah. Um, all of that. So I'm just wondering what the, what you're motivated by, and yeah, what's the flame underneath that?
2: Well,
1: I think there's more than one flame.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I would say that um, definitely something that has stuck with me that uh, my grandfather. This would be my paternal grandfather. I had a conversation with him once. He had a birthday. I don't remember if it was uh, 60, 65. It was, it was one of the larger birthdays. And you know we were sitting out on the porch eating cake. And, and I said, uh, Papa, are you old? And he said, oh, no, I'm not old. And I said, well, how do you know when you're old? And he said, When you're young, you talk about what you're going to do. And when you're old, you only talk about what you've done. And I remember thinking, why would you only talk about what you've done? But, you know, we were enjoying our cake, so I didn't get into it. But (laughs) (laughs) But over the years, I started meeting people and I would ask them, You know, it wasn't just musicians, like artists, playwrights, writers. I'd say, so, uh, you know, what are you doing? And they would tell me what they'd done. And they weren't what anybody would by any means consider old. But it just felt like the moving forward part of things, something had happened, and it stopped. Mm -hmm. And so I think definitely that's one part of it. Like I always wanted to uh, keep seeing how far I could go, like keep moving forward, keep having a project in the future so that I wasn't only just thinking about music in terms of what was in the rear view mirror, but what I was working towards. I think another issue is, um, you know, just through, just through the process of uh, aging as a human, you know, if I think about uh, watching LeBron when he first entered the NBA versus watching him now, I would say that, you know, the level of excellence is still there and the drive and the competitiveness is still there. But clearly, you know, you can't be 23 for the rest of your life. Like, things are going to change, things are going to wear down, I mean, things aren't going to be as quick, things aren't going to you know, be as easy in some ways as they once were. So um, I think a, another flame might be the uh, the flame of, I don't know if you would call it maintenance necessarily, but if you're always working on a new project, if you're always pushing yourself to do better, I think there's, less of a chance of, you know, things just starting to wear away and erode and deteriorate before their time. So, I mean, I know you know musicians who aren't that old, but they've stopped practicing. And so they don't sound that great anymore, not because they can't be, but because they just, I don't know, they just uh, don't practice yeah.
0: Like the time on the instrument and the exploration of the instrument is discontinued, really.
1: Yeah. So the difference between if you heard this person or over music school or conservatory practicing five hours a day versus now, when, or at whatever point in their life when that part is entirely gone away, and you know they're maybe taking their instrument out every once in a while. For rehearsal and that's it. It's uh. I don't know. I guess I I never wanted to fall into into that way of being. Yeah,
0: I'm so, with you. Yeah, I get that completely. It just never felt good. Like.
1: Yeah, like you know we we have such a a finite amount of everything like we have a finite amount of years to be on this planet. We have a finite amount of energy. We have a finite amount of time to do the things that we want to do while we're here. And um, I don't know, it just seems to me that trying to get better at the thing that you do, this is a good way to spend time, yeah. So, so yeah. I think that's also an aspect of things. Maybe um, another flame would be pieces that I wasn't ready to perform earlier in my life or pieces I wasn't happy with the way I performed them earlier. Like now having more experience and uh, having more skill, like coming back to them or doing these pieces that I hadn't gotten to it uh yeah it's, it's, just a, that space. Yeah, it's a it's a progression space. Yeah, yeah evolution
0: yeah
1: I, I was at this point but now I'm yeah. at this point and yeah now working on this piece has showed me what the next point can be.
0: Yeah. You know it's funny as you're talking through it it it, it sort of dawns on me. And it makes perfect sense and it's not something i connected until i asked you the question though it makes sense it's like if one of the things you're orienting your own life to is your own enlightenment and understanding of who you are and um you know being luminous it makes sense to keep pushing that that edge of potential so that so that like you that early teacher said, you know, this is a tool for understanding yourself. It makes sense that if you're looking to deepen your enlightenment, that you keep taking on these massive projects and these these things that are just beyond your reach. I think it's like, yeah, it makes perfect sense. And it just just now struck me uh, that that insight just struck me. So what do you, I mean, a lot of, a lot of the flames are around, uh, that you're mentioning are, are just evolution, also excellence, or just this understanding that it's like, no matter where we are, we kind of reach a potential in that moment and that opens the door to a whole new level of understanding. It's like the higher we rise, the, 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 uh, the more our horizon uh, the more the, the the more of a horizon we see. So, I'm curious for you, when you're like, just, I guess, just what for you defines an excellent performance, or when do you know when you've
2: performed excellently? I would say an excellent performance is.
1: One that provides space for, for greatness to occur. I would say the least successful performances I've been in have been performances where, for whatever reason, everything was so tightly controlled that you know it became the performance became static, like you couldn't breathe. And so even if it was technically brilliant. It um, I don't know. It didn't have any life behind it. It didn't have any any energy. It didn't have anything that was speaking to the audience. It's hollow. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if there's a space created where um, greatness is possible, where you know something does manage to reach the audience in a meaningful way, where the shared experience is something that, you know, makes everybody better. That to me is a excellent performance.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: So, you know, it's not, it's not a matter of uh, what the performance is in necessarily. I've heard excellent performances given by, uh, you know, musicians in the subways in New York when barely anybody was listening. And I missed my train because I was like, oh my God, I, I can't believe I just heard this. You know, I've, I've clearly obviously heard excellent performances given by Yo-Yo Ma or Itzhak Krohman. Uh, I've heard excellent performances given by African drummers. I don't think it's limited to any genre of music or, you know, is this in a concert hall or is it on the street or, are the instruments strata various quality, or is it something you just got, you know, from the swap meet? You know, I don't, I don't think those things are what's at play. I think if you can give a performance that's um, truly meaningful to your audience and, you know, uplifts everyone through the shared experience, that to me is a, an excellent performance.
2: Yeah.
0: I love that you. you say, I love how you describe it, your excellent performance is when you've provided a space for greatness to occur. Um, And I love it because,
2: I'm trying to figure out how
0: to articulate this. I love it because we, the more the more I work with people on the stuff I work with people, the more I see that and, and not even there, but like the general framework it seems that the world works for at least in our country maybe or our culture it seems to be one of like how do I do this? Um, give me the five steps to be able to accomplish this and structure and framework I think are, are are important like trying to seek greatness or achieve greatness through doing something it just seems backwards to me so it the way I see it now is like greatness is emerges from somewhere by removing anything that gets in greatness's way (laughs) So one of the things that I, uh, I love and some of the greatest performances I've ever experienced, I mean, there've been plenty, plenty of just normal audience-related, uh, audience-engaged performances, but some, some of the best things I've ever heard were people warming up behind, uh, off stage some of my favorite performances have been dress rehearsals where um, there hasn't been an audience, maybe a few people listening. Now, let just think of this. It's like the greatest performance this is for me are exactly what you're talking about, where greatness does start to emerge. And It's like if you can, there's also something about the sincerity of, of a performer's Attitude, or what they're trying to communicate um, a truth and a, a, a vulnerable, authentic expression that they're sharing with the audience. And for me, at least, it's always been a very fine line to navigate. I've noticed that as soon as an audience comes into the equation, I not only want the performance to be great, but it's like, there's something about like my ego that gets involved there. Or like, I don't want to not meet the expectation too. There's almost an expectation, which I I think gets in the way of of that greatness that, that it's a thing that can get in the way of greatness emerging naturally. So I'm wondering how you balance these Kinds of things in a performance space or in just pursuing excellence. How do you navigate your own truth to yourself and just sharing from a sincere place and also navigating any extrinsic kind of reward, I guess?
1: The first experience I had with this was um, as a student at Interlocking. There was a uh, I don't know if they still have it, but there used to be this mammoth nine-week session for the campers. And um, the first time I went to this session, I got a scholarship to go, and my my scholarship involved sweeping out Kresge Auditorium, this huge outdoor auditorium. You know, there'd be leaves and trash and programs and gum gum wrappers. And, all manner of stuff and if you can picture an outdoor auditorium like if you're just given one room and you look up and see all of these aisles that you have to sweep (laughs) oh my gosh and you know this was in the middle of the afternoon when all the other kids were swimming and you know playing ball and I was like oh my gosh I have to sweep this thing every afternoon this is tragic however the time that I was scheduled to sweep was also a time when the soloists got to spend time in the hall by themselves and so i realized that i i had this amazing gift like i got to hear all these amazing soloists like just warming up and playing for themselves without an audience there and you know i was just a kid way in the background with a broom they didn't really care that i was there and so i started paying attention to the way that somebody was playing when they were in the auditorium when it was empty versus how they played when there was an audience there. And I started to notice that the people whose performances I liked most had the least difference between the two. Like the first one that comes to mind is Andre Watts. Like I just heard him you know, going through these Bach preludes and fugues when I was sweeping And there was so much imagination and so much life and spontaneity. And then when he got to his performance, like that was there, but then there was more of it. And um, versus, you know, some people, they would sound really brilliant when there was nobody there except me. But then when the audience came, like things got, you know, tight
2: and less
1: expressive. And so I started thinking about, um, you know, how can I, how can I learn to do this? How can I learn to be like the person who um, doesn't have that big drop when the audience shows up? And, um, you know, at some point in a physics class, you know, Schrodinger's cat and, you know, observation changes things. You know that. That was in the back of my mind also, but I think that the spontaneity that you have when you're by yourself, if you can channel that into like the spontaneity that you would have in a conversation with a friend, I think, uh, you know, going out on stage thinking, I'm just going to have this conversation with these people. That's been the best way i found to uh, to keep a balance between what I'm feeling is going well when I'm by myself versus when I'm in front of people.
0: Mm.
1: I don't know if this helps you at all, but
0: it does. Uh, I mean, I find it really particularly insightful and beautiful. Is it? I mean, for me at least, what you're you're talking about kind of speaks to um, maintaining the childhood innocence of. The whatever act you are engaged in.
1: Yeah, yeah. And also, um, you know, being open enough to uh, to communicate with the audience and react to the energy that they're giving you, so that mm-hmm. it's a trade off between the two. I would say definitely the the biggest change. That I'm aware of from when I first started performing to now is that when I played my first quote unquote, big concert mm-hmm. I this concerto competition when I was uh, in high school, I got to play in orchestra hall, and you know, I walked out on stage and I sat down, and I just had this sense of, okay, I'm the soloist. Like I'm the important person here. I have to give a I have to give a really good performance and you know, I think that's natural if you're 16 or 17 or however old I was, but I think now when I go out on stage, I'm thinking, you know, the audience is the most important person in the room or people in the room. Like it's not it's not me, I'm just a part of the experience. And so the difference from having me up here and the audience down here over the years shifting to the audience being up here. And me being over here, they can't see this in a podcast. I just <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> the difference has opened up um, a lot of possibility that wouldn't have happened otherwise for me.
0: Yeah. That's cool. I mean, I think just feeling what I get out of that is just feeling the feeling more of the interconnection of the whole experience that you're not any more or any less important than the audience than another musician and, and realizing that you're all there to try and create something together. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool.
2: I mean,
1: of course, I've seen those videos of Miles Davis when uh, he's like got his back to the audience. <laughs> and, uh, <you> know, <laughs> and I can't operate that way, but... <laughs> You know, different things work for different people. This is just what I found that works for me.
0: Yeah, yeah, In a way, it reminds me of um, Marina Abramovic's uh, artwork and, and one of her guiding principles, I guess, is making the observer part of the art so that the witnessing of the art is actually the artwork in, it, in and of itself. And yeah. I think, yeah, I think it's really um, enlightening and beautiful when that can happen. And I, inevitably, I think those are those moments where the greatest art is actually felt I'm like, oh my God, that was uh, that was something I'm just gonna remember because of the feeling it it transfers or the feeling that people come away from.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely different levels to it. I mean, the thing you were describing earlier, the ego part, I think there's always that aspect to it because personally, to me, there's few things more egotistical than I'm going to go out on stage. You were all going to listen to me (laughs) <laughs> you're going to clap when I'm finished. You're going to be quiet while I'm doing it like that. <laughs> there, there's clearly some ego
2: in it's
0: just, it's
1: just finding a balance,
2: I think. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's just, it's, it's always going to be there, but not to let it get in the way of, like you're saying, not to let it to be able to recognize it for what it is and not letting it get in the way of the greatness that wants to emerge. I think that's the most important thing. I mean, it's like people talk about killing the ego and stuff. And I think it's just, it's crazy making, at least in my mind, it's like, you can't, can you? I mean, and if you do, aren't you just some sort of like, you know,
1: Yeah, I don't know if uh...
0: psychopathic and sane
2: person, (laughs)
1: I don't know if that's the <laughs> way to go. I mean, you can, um, I think it's someone's sense of self that um, can help drive things forward. It's just not letting it become the primal central feature of everything. Right. I yeah. mean, it's going to be a part of things, but yeah, say that I'm going to destroy the ego. That's a, uh, that's intense. I I don't know if I I want to hear that performance necessarily.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> but you know, along
1: those same lines, like when I think, for instance, of uh, my favorite literature, like Toni Morrison is my favorite author. When mm-hmm. I read Toni Morrison, I always have the sense that um, like she's having a conversation with me. Yeah, or um, you know when I read the writing of uh Saramago he's another one of my favorite authors it's the same thing it's just you know here I am and here you are reader and I'm just going to show you what happened as opposed to literature I don't enjoy so much like I am the author I am up here I mean those those kind of uh books and Writings don't interest me so
0: much. I'm reading Stephen King's uh, memoir on writing right now, ah, which is yeah. I find incredibly brilliant, and it's almost like it's kind of whenever you're whenever I'm in the presence of mastery whoever is the master at doing whatever they're doing makes it such an effortless, make it look, makes it look like such a easeful and effortless process that I'm number one, inspired by it, but almost believe I can do it too. (laughs) And then I go try and like, Whoa, this is, this is hard. There's a lot of work that goes into this. And his book is, is, his memoir is the same thing. And it's speaking to what you're talking about. Um, he has this whole thing of just his passion for writing comes across. Just that he thinks it's magic really. And he believes it's a kind of tele- telepathy. The ability for someone a hundred years ago to just describe their living room or whatever. They don't need to, they don't need to give you every detail but their description of it immediately pulls you into that world and you're in that same room together for a, a moment of time. And some of the details might be, you know, there might be a tablecloth and you might add fringe where there was no fringe, but he's saying like, that's not the important thing. The important thing is that you're in that same room together. And um, yeah, just reading that book, it's, it's incredible because of like a lot of it's just sort of this simple, the whole first third of the book is just his simple retelling of childhood stories. And in those, you kind of realize like, wow, these are just normal everyday childhood stories. But the quality that he's writing them in and how much I get sucked into them and how much I can see these images, it's it's um it's incredible. And it was reading those that I was like, yeah, this is this is a master right here. Um, this also
1: speaks to what you were talking about earlier, because, um, I remember it is, you know, his, I don't know if he called them rules for writing, but, yeah. but one of them was, you know, get rid of unnecessary words. And
2: this theme
1: comes up a whole lot in my studies of, um, greatness or excellence or whatever your, whatever term you want to use. Like um, watching Starker play for example and listening to him in a masterclass, like somebody said, uh, what is the thing that you have to teach most? And he said, getting rid of unnecessary motion, getting rid of excess tension, getting rid of things that don't need to be there. Or um, I remember reading somebody asking, Michelangelo, like, how did you carve David? And he said, oh, I didn't carve David. I just got rid of the marble that wasn't David. And it, this is part of the, uh, the journey for me, I think. Certainly on shallow, but in the rest of life, like discarding what isn't necessary so that it's not so much a matter of uh, creating greatness but getting things out of the way that aren't the greatness yeah does that make sense totally like, like everything yeah. that's extraneous that isn't needed yeah if you can somehow clear that away and uh, allow what what is what's pure and what's true to shine through
0: yeah I'm um, I That's a lot of how I see things now in my life too. It's not so much of like a willpower and making things happen. It's how can I cultivate the space for the thing I want to happen? How can I cultivate the space for that thing to emerge? Whether it's greatness, whether it's love, whether it's kindness, whatever it may be. Um, And I find that's a really remarkable, worthy exploration in every moment so that actually I had um, yeah cool what you're talking about also I wanted to look at just for a few moments but earlier on you were talking about how you saw music and how you compartmentalized it and you realize at some point well that's not really useful that's been useful up to now and I need to In order for me to go any further, I'm going to change how I see this so that I can open up possibilities, see something new. So, I wanted to talk about like shedding. So, what we're talking about right now is like the art of subtraction or or shedding layers that are no longer useful. And I'm wondering for you, time seems to be one of those things, your relationship to time you're seeing in a new way. shedding a, a, a relationship to time that's not that's more aligned to who you want to be now but what other things come up for you when things that you're working on releasing and letting go of frames frames of seeing the world or ways of being that um, you've just realized like oh I need to discard that and take on something new to go where I want to go for my next next enlightenment Um, I would say some of
2: that might be the process of unlearning. Mm -hmm. So um, I remember elders, whether they were elders in the
1: church, older family members, a thing that was reinforced both to me and my brother constantly was work hard. Like you have to work hard to get anywhere in life. You need to work hard. And this is true. You definitely need to put in an effort. However, I let this seep into my mind the wrong way. And so when I first got to uh, undergrad and uh, Paul Kett said, play something for me. And I played the beginning of Dvorak for him, he said, stop. And he said, why are you working so hard? And I said, because I'm supposed to? <laughs> <laughs> Which was an honest answer, but perhaps yeah. there. Right yeah, so.
0: <laughs> Thanks for your candor. Yeah. <laughs> Go sit down now, please. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and
1: so, realizing that, um, you know, while you need to put in the effort to improve mm-hmm. as a person and you know, definitely to make a living. I mean, no one's just gonna hand you money. But as far as performing on cello, if you're, you know, physically working hard, you're doing something incorrectly. There should be, you know, an element of, of ease, an element of uh, relaxation and fluidity in your movements, not like you're trying to muscle sound out of the instrument through force, but you know, you're you allowing the instrument to sing. You're uh, in tune with what makes it vibrate and resonate the most freely. So it's strange how some things stay with you because even to this day, all these years later, when I feel myself you know, maybe being challenged by something in music or struggling with a passage, and, you know, I, I turn on my phone and record myself playing it on the video. And I look back at the video, I see myself working too much. And, you know, I think, wow, is it, that's still there. Like that's not, it's not gone yet, I, I, really. So <laughs> I think that would definitely be a thing that needs to be reframed because um, it's something that I still, have to think about and something that I'm still working on. I use the word work, but something that I'm still thinking about.
2: <laughs> nice catch. Yeah. <laughs> I would say, um, I don't know, the, the general concept of, uh, This is the path that a successful life goes through. And if you're not on this path,
1: then you're not successful. I was reminded of this most starkly when um, maybe five years ago, I performed in a nursing home. And I met this woman who was in her late 90s and she said, "Oh, I'm I'm so happy that you came here and played cello." She said, "I always wanted to play the cello." I said, "Oh, why why didn't you play the cello?" And she said, "Oh, you know, well, I was a girl, and you know, times were hard. And I, there was a war." She said, "You know, I had a, I was supposed to you know go to school. And I was supposed to have a family. And I was supposed to run the household. I was supposed to raise the kids. And I was supposed to help with the grandchildren. And then I was supposed to." know do these things in retirement and and she said one day I woke up and I was in my 80s and I'd done all these things that I was supposed to do but I had never tried to play cello which is what I wanted to do all along and
2: you know I remember
1: thinking like so many of us are given this template for what we should be doing and This template definitely works for some people. I mean, I'm not saying it's an inherently bad template, like for some people it's helpful, but to say that this is how everybody should be and the path that everybody should follow, I think uh, this is a mistake. I think as much as we can do to find and make our, our own path
2: that leads to what we deem successful, better off we'll be here here man yeah so um you know i mean i'm sure you've had this experience when you were younger like i remember
1: uh picking i won't say your name picking up someone to go to prom and it's like, oh, she's not ready yet. You can talk to her father while she gets ready. And uh, <laughs> having a look at me and say, uh, so what do you want to do with your life? I said, well, I, I'm going to be a shellist And he said, oh, I, I work for a living. <laughs> <laughs> I remember this clearly.
2: What did you say? Like,
1: <laughs> you're 17 years old and this Get guy's... <laughs> Are you gonna argue the point right. before you take the the yeah. <laughs> I guess you work, sir. And
0: I... <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Gotta gotta know where to pick your battles.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was not it. <laughs> so,
0: yeah. That's... Yeah. I mean, I think that's a very deep thing you're you're speaking to. And um there is that. It comes back for me, it comes back again to just understand ourselves in the moment, like who are we? What are we drawn towards? What would we love, and how how would we love to do it? And um, following that what is intrinsic to us, it doesn't mean to discard external structure, external reward, any of that, but to to go against the grain of yourself is a hard way to go through life. Definitely. Yeah. Man. I'm um, just gonna ask a couple more sort of off the cuff questions and we can just begin to, to wind down. I feel like that's a, it's just a beautiful um, sentiment we just left with. So thanks for that. Uh, I know literature and there's so many other things that are part of your, your life. You have so many interests and things, but literature is a big one. Um, what, what book has changed you the most, would you say? Or like if there's a book that you had to... Um, ah, I'm gonna stay with the first one because that's the one that I'm actually curious about.
2: Let's see. Lots of different books have um, moved me in different ways. So this is a difficult question,
1: but I would say that um, the first time I read Beloved by Toni Morrison, that was the first time I had uh, like a physical visceral reaction to what I was reading. Like before then I didn't know that words could be that powerful. like evoke that kind of response in a reader because you know you go through life and you see concerts and like oh wow that that blew me away you know you watch a movie or you watch a sporting events but there's this component of the visual that's adding to what you're feeling and so i had never experienced it where there wasn't a visual image. It was just what the creator was, you know, showing to me through words and what I was, you know, replaying in my mind that caused that kind of reaction. And realizing that, you know, if you have a level of artistry that's transcendent enough, you know, words are enough to, to reach out and grab someone in that way and, and affect them on a deeper level. So that's what comes to mind. I remember um,
2: reading 100 Years of Solitude and just thinking that it was so colorful. Like colorful, not colorful like a, a rainbow spectrum
1: color wheel colorful, but just in terms of you know how much was being done in the interplay of characters and the magical realism and,
2: the description of what was going on. It it felt to me like the experience of uh, when I encountered uh, Petrushka for the first time
1: playing in an orchestra. And I thought I didn't know that this kind of sound was possible. Like how does somebody have this in their mind walking around on a daily basis? Like what was Stravinsky like? How How do you have this in your head? This is not normal because it, I just felt overwhelmed by everything I was I was hearing in the orchestra with the different orchestrations and instrument groups and ranges that were being used. And so, yeah, I think reading Gabriel Garcia Marquez was like the literary version of that. Mm. It felt um, like just this vibrancy yeah. of what was being
2: written.
0: Yeah, that's cool. And just that... that that how, how does someone have an imagination like this? I think that's those kinds of moments are really yeah. incredible. Yeah.
2: I think um, I had read books
1: by intellectuals before, but when I first read James
2: Baldwin, it was, um, it wasn't uh, like,
1: intellectual writing just for an intellectual sake. Like he was, he was actually applying it towards something that I could understand, and something that I was experiencing, you know, living in this country.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, I think that spoke to me on a deeper level. Like he was trying to use the power of his mind to illuminate, you know, things I hadn't thought about in that way or things I hadn't understood in that way. And uh,
2: yeah, I started going through his books and like just being amazed at
1: you know, the, the insight he was capable of inspiring, and you know, just the, the precision of his language. So uh, those three come to mind, but there's, there's been a lot of books over the years that have uh, moved me in some way or spoken to me on you know, that deeper kind of
2: level. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: the uh, road of excellence is a bumpy one. Setbacks along the way, mistakes along the way. What do you, or who, or what do you turn to when you feel stuck?
2: Well, I think um, the first place I would turn to is family mm-hmm. because um,
1: a constant in my life has been that uh, they've always believed in what I was doing. And so if I'm stumbling, the first thing I'm doing is doubting myself. And so like being in the, in the presence of those who believe in what I'm doing, this, um, this is a good place for me to be when I'm when I'm stuck,
2: I think um, maybe looking towards uh, excellence in other genres
1: or other other areas of life. Like um, I remember when I was having issues with the with a spiccato passage in a piece I had to give in a performance and. You know, I just couldn't figure my way through it. You know, I started uh, watching sports sports films. And, you know, I started looking at uh, Ted Williams swinging a bat, and, you know, Big Poppy swinging a bat, or, uh, you know, Babe Ruth swinging a bat and seeing what they had in common, what this excellence in hitting had in common. And the thing that I noticed was no matter how different the stance was at the beginning of the swing, everybody ended up looking the same way and nobody had any tension on their way getting there. And so when I started thinking about how I could apply that to my bar, that actually helped a whole lot. And so I think, um, Even uh, if you go to a different art, I spent some time looking um, at Rothko paintings when I was having problems thinking about how to get the inner psychology of a piece across to uh, to someone else. And just looking at these panels of a uh, color two colors yeah. on the outside and one color on the inside, and mm-hmm. this thing that appears to be so simple, but has so much going on just spending some time with that helped me so i don't know if this would fall into the category of cross training but if you can um look at excellence in other areas and see what you can learn from it this uh this has helped me when i've gotten stuck also yeah
0: i think it's just getting a wider perspective right um yeah yeah i was at a Back when I was teaching yoga, I was waiting for the studio to open. This is a number of years ago. And I heard across the parking lot, I started to hear something. And I looked over and there was a a vacant suite. So it was a, a bunch of shops there. And this particular suite was a corner suite. So big window on one of the corners. You could see through the whole building to another window on the far end as well. So you could see right through. The whole building and I heard this crow that was bouncing into the window and I kept trying to fly through because I could see through the building and I was like oh man what should I do uh, and of course the solution was simple to me it's like it's running into a glass <laughs> that it thinks it can go through and then at one point uh shortly after I was like I'm not even sure what to do here should I go try and like shoo it away Um, it just simply got tired landed on the sidewalk tried to fly into the window again and then flew up and over the building and I thought that was so interesting and saw how I related to that exact same situation like a lot of times I feel stuck I'm just sitting there like banging my head against the problem and being able to step back and go up and over because there's probably a very easy solution, um, it just uh, became sort of a framework for me to to work through anytime I'm uh, I might be stuck or any any problems. If I step back and go up and over, what might happen here? Yeah, yeah. Try something different. Yeah. So yeah, just getting a different perspective. I think that's really useful. And I lo- I love that you have that your family is such a central part of your foundation. It's really. Really cool What is your what's your favorite word right now?
2: I think at the moment it would be possibility hmm. because um, when I think about uh, what I'm doing,
1: if I uh, become like the bird in your story and keep running into the window, (laughs) it's because I'm not, you know, being open to another way. So thinking in terms of possibility, like what else can be done? Like what else can I imagine? Like what, uh, what haven't I thought of yet? Yeah, I would say that's the that's the word these days.
2: That's a
0: great one. I mean, yeah, it's a good one. Man, again, thank you just so much for being here and and for such a rich, wonderful conversation. I just love learned so much about you, and just there's so many things to apply here for me. It's really uh, amazing to be with you. And oh, likewise, thank you yeah. for asking
1: me. Uh, yeah learned a lot yeah I miss the days of chess games before concerts we'll have
0: to uh <laughs> yeah what are you up to these days like what are you creating what are, what are you what's capturing your interest I am in the process
1: of uh working towards a recital for next spring and pieces are in place I just need to find funding for it and uh you know, the part of me that is, that is not fond of asking for help, it's like, oh, my gosh.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but, but, you know, I'll uh, I'll work through it and, and find a way to make it work. But, uh, yeah, I mean, things haven't been uh, confirmed or finalized, but the pieces are all in my mind. I'm just working on a way to make it all fit together and then... Yeah. Yeah. If all works out, it will be, uh, next spring. So awesome, I'll let
2: you
0: know. Man. Yeah, definitely do. Yeah, man. Lastly, any, any ask or any words you might have to share with anyone who's listening?
2: I would say that, uh, my ask would be for people to go out and
1: listen to music from a genre that they're not familiar with. Or, you know, ask people you know what authors they enjoy and find a new author. That would be my ask, just to experience something new, like open up your mind in a new way. It could even be um, ask somebody what, a, you know, their favorite Netflix show is. Just something that gets you out of your routine and what you're used to, just so you, you know, have that new experience. Yeah, I don't know if I have any wisdom. (laughs) I was thinking about uh, my birthday recently and I was looking through journals and thinking to myself, now, if I were to look through these journals as a complete stranger, what could I learn? And without question, like there's absolutely no doubt. The thing that can be learned from reading my journals is that the lesson will be repeated until it's learned. Like it is it, I can't even get into it. So <laughs> <laughs> life, life is <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think in this life is the best teacher and the worst teacher. <laughs>
0: Yeah, there's a difference yeah. between there's a difference between knowing the challenge and understanding the challenge.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that would be a that would be a, a topic for a whole uh, yeah a whole whole other podcast. But yes, I don't know if that's necessarily wisdom, but uh, <laughs> I, I can promise
2: you it's true.
0: <laughs> oh, thanks again, man. I miss laughing with you, man. So glad (laughs) we had a chance to do this. We should do it again sometime. It's been awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Damon Coleman. If you've learned something or enjoyed this conversation, consider taking a moment to support us by subscribing to the podcast. If you've already subscribed, please consider leaving a review on Apple podcasts. Also, please feel free to reach out to share whatever you've learned, ask any questions you may have, or that any suggestions of who you might want to hear on the podcast, you can email me at touchinggreatness@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I'm looking forward to being with you next time. I will leave you with some of Damon's plane. And before that, I share the words of one of the great matadors of all time, Juan Belmonte. No life worthy of the name consists of anything more than the continual series of struggles to develop one's character through the medium of whatever one has chosen as a career.